Andre Alexis was born in 1957 in Trinidad and Tobago, grew up in Ottawa, and currently lives in Toronto, Ontario. His debut novel, Childhood, was the winner of the Books in Canada First Novel Award and a co-winner of the Trillium Award. In addition to his writing, he is a member of the editorial board of this magazine. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to talk about that kind of violent effort to figure out where you are on a personal level being important to you. Um, it's kind of an obsession, I guess, you know. Um, and I suppose it's a, it's a typically immigrant kind of thing. Well, I was born in Trinidad, and then at the age of three or four, I came to Ottawa, Ontario. And uh, it was young enough so that I was close enough to kind of like having a second birth in a way, except that I was kind of conscious of things being strange and conscious of the world being different, conscious of the accents being different, the architecture being different, the climate being different, the land being different. It created a kind of dissonance, a situation in which the world that I came from existed right beside the world that I was now discovering, the world, Canada. But without your parents, too. I was without my parents at the time. So, so what a completely different world, eh? I was without my parents in Trinidad because they left us there, but I met them up again in Canada. So it makes it actually even more interesting oh. because they being there, Canada should have been my home, but it wasn't quite. And that not quite is really, really important because it was the cause of endless speculation of, all well, where is home? What is home? Where am I? What am I supposed to be doing? Is this where we're going to stay forever? Is this what um, my world is? And so the effort to find out where I am starts with a kind of practical thing, but it, because I'm the kind of person that I am, so I, I think a lot and I, I sort of get lost in my own head, it also has metaphysical ramifications. So where am I in terms of, you know, humanity, is there a God, is there not a God, all of those questions mm-hmm. about where and what. Or am I wanted? Am I wanted, absolutely. Uh, and God comes into that too, doesn't it? So that kind of became a huge um, motive for what I do when I write. Mm. It seems to me. So your parents left you when you were how old? One and a half, one, one and a half, yeah. So it was a crucial time. Yes, exactly. It's, uh, but you, you were with your grandmother, is that correct? I was with my grandmother part of the time, but with my father's brother uh, most of the time. My father's brother and his wife and their kids. Okay. And, uh, and, and my grandmother some of the time. My other side of the family some of the time. So, so again, split between two things. I yeah. think essentially that um, my life is split. That's my symbol is two. I'm at two with myself. I'm at two with the world, and so that Sounds that like kind of creates a sense of like what's on the other side, right. which is also what's inside of me. It sounds like Canada, doesn't it? It is. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you go, it kind of go statistically, I might actually be the the perfect statistical Canadian in that I'm, I studied in French, so I speak French, I speak English, and I wasn't born here. So, yeah. you know, it's getting close to being like the more Canadian. Yeah. You were so young uh, when your parents left. Do you do you recall any of that pain or loneliness or? Yes, of course, but not directly. I don't go to that place. It comes to me. Um, so when I'm writing, my conscious effort is obviously to get out of my brain's way. 
Yeah. And so I tend to discover the connections that that breach has left um, in my work. Like, I mean, my work is all about this kind of divide. In Asylum, for instance, there are, it's a novel of kind of splits, first-person, third-person narration, public life, private life, God, man, Ottawa and Canada versus um, Italy and uh, a monastery. It's kind of the novel that most reflects the breach. And the breach has a kind of source of um, ideas and images and feelings. So it can be tremendously creative, that breach, even though it's tremendously distressing. Well, you did come back, obviously. You, you, uh, you were reunited with your parents. Yes. So that's, uh, that must have... Can you remember any of that? No. I can remember meeting them again, and that that was an odd thing. Strangers. And there were strangers, essentially, yeah. who I knew intellectually were important to me. They left me at one. By the time I was three or four, my entire life had revolved, right? I mean, I had lived a, you know, that same span without them. Yeah. So for all intents and purposes, they really were strangers. And the re-acclimatization uh, of, of my parents and myself was uh, traumatic. And I can remember the meeting, but I don't remember the, um, the full extent of the trauma because obviously that's something that is a little bit blocked off to me, except again when I'm writing where that thing has echoes. In Ottawa, do they both work for the government? or did they? Not at all. My father's a doctor and my mother was a, worked as a legal secretary when I first knew her. When you first knew her? her. Yeah. That's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can actually speak it from that way. Yeah. My father was a student when I first met him, and my mother was a um, legal secretary. He became a doctor, and she, much later, um, uh, became a, a lawyer. And so they were professional people. So they were, they, were of a, they were of a certain education in Trinidad, and they had made a choice, I think, for a quote-unquote better life, something different life. So we've touched on it, but the themes of, uh, of absence and displacement and uh, belonging, you've... In They're central. They're actually essential to my work, and all of those words have real ramifications if you sort of like hold them above your head while you're reading my work. I think that you'll find that they, with the idea of home, which is kind of like a fourth in, in the Four Horsemen, if there has to be an apocalypse, they're always there. They have interesting ramifications, like longing is both um, spiritual and carnal, and absence is uh, both presence and non-presence, in the way that um, the narrator of Asylum is both there at the start, he disappears through most of the novel, coming back every once in a while, and then comes back again, only to disappear at the end uh, in a kind of... Um, he's translating Luca and talks about uh, disappearing within the text. Let's talk about Asylum, then. It's set in conservative in 1980s. Do you name names? Yeah, no, I don't name names, really, except for Brian and, in passing, you know, Pat Carney, Eric Nielsen, the people who are in the cabinet. So their names do come up, but the only one that has a real presence is Brian Mulroney. It's strange because Asylum is a novel written by someone who... Uh, is not a, I'm not a conservative, but I was careful not to make the conservatives necessarily villainous because the thing that was interesting about Brian Mulroney for me was, again, a kind of splitness. Brian Mulroney is... He's interesting in that he's both English and French. Mm -hmm. He's also interesting in that, for me, 
I wondered whether he was a good guy, which is part of his image, or whether he was a ruthless prick, which is also part of his image. Reconciling those two became central in the novel in the sense that who will betray you, who will not, how much you can trust people, uh, how much you can trust yourself. Those questions are part of what made uh, Mulroney's Ottawa for me. So the last part of the 80s were filled with a kind of suspicion mm. and doubt, and the novel reflects that, I think. I don't get surprised too anyway. It's filled with questions. Interesting. Uh, the best characters, of course, are the complex ones. Well, I love Dickens's villains, and they're always like almost monomaniacal, but they're so great. True enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. One of the one of the things that was at the heart of it was really trying to capture the place, and so not trying to capture reality as in you know normal events but trying to capture normal events as well as the kind of metaphysical underpinnings or the linguistic underpinnings of normal events. Like, you know, there are mythological aspects to Ottawa. There are metaphysical aspects of Ottawa that I like, that I'm trying to restore in society. Like, like what? We're talking about the linguistic thing, that it is French and English. Uh, that implications of those are metaphysical in that its origins are both North American and continental. And so looking at Ottawa from the continental side, I mean, the narrator of Asylum Mark is actually set in, in Italy, and he's looking back on this North America. But it's a North America that is also pervaded by Italy, i.e. what Canadian culture is and what Ottawa culture is now perforce is completely saturated with German culture, French culture, Italian culture. So that European thing and the implications of that, how much of Europe is part of what I am um, and how much of what North America is part of what I am, where do you, start, where do you divide those things? That's the kind of metaphysical question that um, the new world calls to mind for me. It's again, where am I? Yeah. But on a, on a kind of more um, intellectual level or philosophical level. Uh, I think Mulroney is a fascinating character. Uh, I think a lot of Canadians really disliked him because of his unctuous desire to be liked. My, the purity of my dislike only became kind of pure later. Suing the government for accusing him of taking money from Karl Heinz Schreiber, when in fact he did, that's for me unforgivable. Well, one assumes that certain facts <coughs> come out that, that perhaps will portray him as being the bad guy instead of the good guy that I shared yeah. that with you I, yeah. I, I liked his his friendly yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I thought it was very appealing whereas some and I did trust him I think me too so many Canadians didn't so this, how does that play itself out in the, in the novel it plays itself out in a constant questioning it's what can you trust what is in front of you what are we who is this person in front of you? It plays itself out as an inability to sit comfortably with any bit of information that's there, specifically about other people. So in the novel, people seem to be one thing, but then they turn out to be another. They do things for one reason, but it has the, either the opposite effect or an effect that they may not have known they wanted, but they do have wondering about what it is that we do when we act and what it is other people actually are. And so that's the... If we, if we can trust them, you mean, or...? Yes, that's one aspect of it, yeah. whether you can trust them, whether the nature of a human being is one thing or whether it's multiple, you know, 
black and white versus comp comp complex. Yes, absolutely. Multicolored. Yeah, absolutely. But perhaps you could give us a, a, a pricey of the of the novel. If absolutely. You, if you yeah, the mind. There are, in my mind, two main narratives. One is the effort of a person named uh, Franklin to create, Franklin Dupuis, to create or have built a prison. Uh, he commissions an artist's version of it because he's convinced that it's possible to build a work of architecture that being itself art will civilize those who are within it. And so he's trying to, to get a, a real artist to create a prison that is itself art in the hope that, you know, the men who live within it will be civilized by their presence in the face of this thing. Like the Museum of Civilization exactly. or yes. the gallery that's yes. beautiful. Yes. Except filled with rapists and murderers. It is, of course, like an insane idea. And um, asylum, of course. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that, that's one of the journeys, and that's the public journey. Because this is a novel that is split in so many ways, there's also a private journey. And the private journey for me is the story of Walter, Louise, and uh, kind of coming towards love. And so so Walter and Louise? Yeah, there are two characters. One's named Walter Barnes, and the other is named uh, Louise Montier. Uh, Louise is married at the time when they first know each other. And so it's the complications of that relationship. They separate. He's a university uh, teacher, and she's a librarian. And so they come back together at the end and attain a uh, kind of love. So there's a kind of completion on, on that level as well. In those two, or in and amongst those two stories, there are subsidiary stories, the stories of other um, different kinds of people. To set up the world, to make the world more rich and complicated is what I wanted. Although maybe it just makes it more complicated. But those were the two main things for me. Uh, a love story and a story about prison. Uh, a renaissance era prison. Does it require Ottawa? Yes, in the sense that Ottawa is the generator of it. It could, I suppose, be have been set in, in, in Washington, but I don't know whether Washington, and I know Washington a little bit, would have set off the same sets of characters, concerns, um, the same mix of culture and language. Yeah. So, uh, although it's possible to conceive the story in a, in a different um, capital, it's not cult it's not possible for me to imagine it in this form if it had come from St. Petersburg or Paris or Washington. So yes, it, it, it needs it in that that is the place in which it really, really springs. And there are all sorts of references to the city in a deep sense. Like, I mean, I think that um, Paul Gassel, the guy who reviewed it for The Citizen, was able to see connections in it as an Ottawa person mm -hmm. that uh, I don't think people who were not Ottawa people would really see. Uh, for one thing, there's an artist in it um, that is somewhat based, very slightly based on an Ottawa artist named Evergon, and he got that immediately. And I actually didn't think anybody would, yeah. but he completely did. Yeah, he covers the arts. So yeah. yeah, yeah. There's an interesting line about your being a black author who attempts to tackle issues like displacement and and belonging without placing the major emphasis upon race or racism. That's true. First of all. Uh, in how we're talking about it, I think, uh, and in how I tend to talk about it, I think that the novels and all of my work get short shrift in terms of their humor. I mean, I think that I'm writing a comedy, uh, usually, when I, when I set out, and I find people not quite sure whether they should be laughing. 
that's something that's, uh, that's slightly odd for me. Like, I mean, the idea of that prison is so bizarre. It's a lovely idea. It, it is. It's like completely... It's a bit of a folly, isn't it's it? Folly. It's totally a folly. Yeah. And, uh, and it's amusing. And it's amusing in the way that all human thinking can be. You know, you're trying to understand something. It's like running in place, you know, desperately running in place. And for some reason, I find that book really, really... Um, amusing and really, really touching. And so a lot of the comedy for me really resides in the kind of like this metaphysical desire to know. Even my own desire to know I find like completely amusing on some level. So um, I, I would want to talk about um, my books as being essentially comedy. But the other thing, which is that I talk about displacement and absence and all of those things without referring to, um, without referring explicitly to my own race is important in that for me, being black and being an immigrant is generative of my work too. In the same way that Ottawa is generative of, of, of this particular novel, behind the novel there is something that's generative as well, mm-hmm. and that is my race and my, it's part of what is generating my, my, my work. I feel that the problem for me is that given the kind of person that I am, I don't care to speak for other people. I don't care to be a black writer in that sense because I'm not convinced that what I want and what I feel and what I am um, corresponds to a wider blackness. You know, most of the time when people talk about blackness, they have in mind a kind of political reality that somewhat intersects with mine, but not completely. Mm. And sometimes I can find um, the, the, the politics of blackness oppressive Meaning, I, I I don't feel any particular uh, affinity with affinity it. with yeah. it, you know. And so there are things. Yours is much more of an immigrant experience than a black experience. Then, yes. Okay. I think. I, yeah. I think I would accept that. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the immigrant and the displacement comes first. The blackness isn't immaterial, mm-hmm. but it probably comes second. But there's another thing too, and that is that in the end. I think some of the liberation that has been won from previous black writers and black intellectuals has been a struggle to allow black people to simply express themselves as what they are, uh, human beings, wondering yeah. about God, wondering about politics, wondering about other people, wondering about love, yeah. um, wondering about the church, I mean, all of these things. And at some point, we can, I think, stop talking about blackness first and start talking about our humanity because some of those battles, I think, have been won. Mm. I, 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 it feels at times, and I may be wrong, it feels at times to me as if those battles are being fought after the victory. And, yeah, and a bit like, well, feminism, in a way, the battle to a large extent has been won, mm. so why not speak as a human being first? Right, or at least try to see if it doesn't work out, because that will tell you something too. So if we're all, if all black writers are speaking from their blackness first, then it's like constantly this battle. This is the it's almost it's so perpetuating the difference, it is, isn't it? It is, it is. It's like an internal war, and that's a problem because at some point, as I say, you must assume some of those victories. Or else, what were they for? What was the previous generation of black intellectuals doing if 
part of the generation that comes after couldn't assume those victories because they, yeah, fuck you, I am black, but so what? You, that doesn't mean you know me anymore just because you know the color of my skin. This is what I am, and it's way more complicated than what you assume from either as a white person looking at black people or as a black person looking at black people because actually black people's views on black writers or black artists can be just as oppressive because they expect them to conform to versions of, of, of black identity. So it's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. I love the stuff that's coming out, the science that's coming out now that shows that we're all, <laughs> we all come from Africa. You know, and Jesse Helms is related to Obama uh, oh, yeah. or, or whomever, yeah. yeah. It's a political thing. Purity is, a, purity is a funny idea. You have to, I think on some level, insist on your right not to speak of your blackness or your right not to speak of your womanness or... In, in, in effect, you're right not to speak of your whiteness because there is a sense in which white people do speak of whiteness, you know. Um, that people normally say, well, it's invisible, but there are all sorts of codes that I, I think are in white literature that um, I think white artists should go away from. I love the idea of a white person speaking for a native, speaking for a black person. If they do it wrong, that's interesting. That's a good cause to say, well, that, you know, really when you're, when you're X, it doesn't work that way. And then we can talk about that. But you need to transcend or to go beyond yourself to imagine the wider community. And that's, you know, one of the things also in, in, in Asylum, that um, in imagining the community, uh, Mark, the narrator, is imagining himself. In painting a portrait of Ottawa, he's painting a portrait of himself. And there are white people in it, there are women in it, there are black people in it, there are politicians in it, there are people from all stages of life. And that imagining, whether it's accurate or not, is kind of a reflection of the individual. You know? So individual and community like this, and I think um, it's very important to, to, to reassert the, the, the real connection. It's interesting that the the, you know, the voices that uh, that deny the rights of a white person to speak on behalf of Aboriginals or black people to speak on behalf of whites, they are shutting down any kind of understanding. Or They're shutting down also one of the fundamental aspects of what art is which is to imagine yourself as other than you are. Mm. That is actually something of what we do. Whether we're explicitly doing it or not, that is something of what we do. We have the capacity for empathy, the capacity to feel outside of ourselves. In, in, in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That is what distinguishes the humans from the androids. That the humans, even though they're trying to drug themselves out of their empathy, still are empathetic. They can feel. And so... And that's what reading novels does. That's what reading novels does, absolutely. So to say you can't exercise this fundamentally human thing, which is to try to imagine yourself as other than you are, is really anti-art and it's anti-creation. That's not to say that all efforts to imagine yourself as a white person, if, if you're black, or as a woman, if you're a man, or whatever, are perfect. They're not. Um, and we can talk about the ways in which they don't conform to reality, or, or may be exaggerated, or may be um, mistaken. But you can't forbid the act itself. Mm -hmm. That act is as close to the holy 
as humans get to imagine ourselves as other humans. And I, Which is what you do as a novelist, of course. <laughs> what you're doing is holy. Yeah, but I think it's what all artists do. And I think it's yeah. what we all do, too, when we read. I mean, as a, as a novelist, yes, I'm producing moments in which empathy can be exercised, but I'm also a reader, mm-hmm. and I go to those moments that allow me that as well. So I think it's a, it's a universal muscle. We all have it, whether we all exercise it as art or in other ways. That's, uh, that's part of the question. I don't, I don't necessarily think that being an artist is a deeper form of humanity. I, I don't think that at all, actually. I think that what it does, though, is there are some of us uh, who can visually allow us to get beyond ourselves and some who sonically can allow us to get beyond ourselves and some who in words do it. That's cool. But all works of art are communitarian in that they involve at least two, the creator and the listener. And the listener is always as important as the creator. This is a holy act that can only be done at do. So it's a fundamentally spiritual thing that needs two people in order to be accomplished. So it's really important. And so we tend maybe at times to emphasize the artist but uh, the other part of the equation, the, the, the real the response, mm-hmm. response, just as important. And part of what ultimately is the aesthetic act. The aesthetic act isn't only the writing, it's also the reception of the writing. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you know, the aesthetic act takes place infinitely more times, potentially, than the creative act itself. But that doesn't mean that the creative act has precedence, except, except in terms of time, I mean, it comes first. I'd like to get back to Mulroney. I'm speaking uh, with Andre Alexis. You are. In Montreal at the Blue uh, Metropolis Writers Festival. Brian Mulroney may have been more innocent than the average citizens of the capital. That's what, yes, that's what a critic said. That's what a critic said. And I just uh, wondered if you agreed with that. And if you do, where are you coming from? No, I understand the logic. He was saying that given that the characters in the novel are themselves extremely complex and morally ambiguous, it may be that in their moral ambiguity they are more ambiguous and darker than Brian Mulroney is, if you accept that Brian Mulroney was a good guy. But the character that you drew of him was less complicated than some of the others? Because less time was given to him. Yes. So, yes, we see him at one point in the House of Commons during question period, and then we see him as one of his ministers tenders his resignation, and he actually speaks that. And so we don't have time to investigate his complexity in the same way. Mm. He's more uh, he's more symbolic in the novel than he is actual, um, which is fine. But I mean, which is fine by me. I mean, that's that was I didn't want to I didn't want to write the bio of Brian Mulroney, even though I thought it was important. That he did that himself. He did at greater length. Yeah, and so did Peter and Newman. <laughs> yeah, it's like a different were version. Unfortunate results, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Dickens. Perhaps you could speak a little bit about your love of Dickens and also Tolstoy. My um, love of Tolstoy is absolute. I have two. Um, I have two idols, both dead, thankfully. One is Beckett, and uh, the other is Tolstoy. And I say thankfully because it means I don't have to meet them and be disappointed. It can always be like really cool guys for me. I feel sorry for you in a way because if you get to read these books and love them, then you get to meet the people that um, write them. It's not always going to be a pleasure. I should I should tell you though it, 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 I can't think of a writer that I've met that I haven't really enjoyed meeting. Is that true? It's true. Yeah, I, uh, and I don't know that I've even been disappointed. 
that true? I, I'm really, that's one of the things that's been quite, quite uh, surprising. Uh, but especially, <laughs> well, especially when you, <laughs> when you, what did you mouth there? I said I have. <laughs> especially when you consider that so many artists have a reputation of being assholes, like Picasso, for example. Yeah. Maybe, maybe what shelters you is that you're in a position where you're, you're interviewing them and you're talking about their ideas and so it's it's, it's all about them yes it's all about, yes, it's true enough uh, no I've met some real dickheads okay which well. has sort of turned me off their work but the Dickens thing to go from dickheads to Dickens that was a bet with myself when I finished my first novel I had spent X amount of time with myself, and it was long, it was like three years, and it was great. I had discovered something that I didn't know was there, which is a capacity to be with myself without panic, and thinking, and then meditating for X amount of time. And that was great, that was a revelation. My ability to pay attention to this thing, because I'm kind of a scattered individual, I'm all over the place, I'm thinking about all sorts of things. Yeah. But that novel was uh, really a demonstration of my ability to be quiet. Sorry, which one was this? Uh, childhood, the first one. The first of the series of three I'd like to write. Oh, okay. The second one is Asylum. And what I partly wanted to do was understand what going even longer would be. Um, I had no idea that it was going to take ten years. I thought it might take maximum five. And so I got what I wanted in space, and it wasn't the same at all. It was more nerve-wracking, it was harder, it was uh, a work of mine that I found really, really difficult to do. Just emotionally, just lasting with it for 10 years. It really took a round out of me, and I really hated it until I got to the end of it. And I kind of felt that the struggle itself um, had left within that book something vital about who I was. And so I came to, uh, I came to see that um, that was good. So the Dickensian plan, which is to write at Dickensian length, um, mm-hmm. kind of worked out in the end. But if you only do one uh, every ten years, you're not going to catch up uh, in terms of the numbers of novels he produced. George Eliot, how did they do it? It's amazing to think of those guys sitting by the fireplace, longhand, doing this. I mean, it's it's astounding when you think about it. If you've worked on a long novel, to think about doing one every two years like Dickens did—that's astounding. Total respect. And if not all the characters are as complicated as uh, as you might like. Well, so what? It's so much else. You get a great story, and you get some cool villains, and uh, he's, he's a great mimic, so you get some great voices, and it's fun. Yes, and great, great names. Great names, of course. Really great names. Mr. Pexton, God, I love Martin Chuzzlewood. I wanted to enter into that realm, and didn't, because I'm not Dickens, but did manage to discover something about doing a 500-page novel. Now, he was like three or 400 pages beyond me in, in my Martin Chuzzlewood or um, Our Mutual Friend. Our Mutual is probably my favorite. Um, so I still haven't actually attained the Dickensian thing, yeah. but I tried. Why is uh, Our Mutual Friend your favorite? Oh, Our Mutual Friend is my favorite because I love most of the characters in it, and the bad people, like Mr. S- Bradley Hinston, are interestingly bad. They're dark and they're creepy. And uh, Eugene, who's supposed to be the nice guy, is also a bit of a creep. <laughs> so it's, it, it's complicated in, 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 in how it works. And then also the, the good guys, the golden dustmen, they're all really interesting, you know. So it's a real, it, for me, it's a world. And you know, you're immediately plunged into it because you're on the Thames with that boat. And, uh, 
dredging for dredging for whatever, and uh, immediately that world just opens itself up to you. Love it. It's the same thing for me with Tolstoy. You, oh, you just step into another world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with Tolstoy, it's even deeper because I think the char- there, there I think for me personally, um, you talk about the pinnacle of novel writing. I love Proust, but after all, In Search of Lost Time is unfinished. So we don't actually know what In Search of Lost Time would have been. So all the mistakes that happen at the end with the character dying and coming back and all that sort of stuff, which can be kind of annoying, is the product of seeing a fragment. So the In Search of Lost Time is the kind of modern equivalent of the Acropolis. I mean, we, we, we have a sense of its grandeur and its beauty, but we don't actually have the thing. But it's fantastic. But with Tolstoy, I think um, in, in very different ways in Anna and in War and Peace, you have the most, I think, that novels can do. They take you to a place. They're filled with different and interesting characters. He's playing with voices. He has an eye for detail that is simply amazing. When he is describing something, he gets it. He just gets it. He's able to toss off descriptions that are just like very vivid and very there. I remember um, um, Nabokov talks about um, you know Anna's hairstyle and and this is is really concerned with uh, how precise. And Tolstoy is in Anna Karenin, and I think that precision is part of the beauty. But also, if Dickens is rushed and does two-dimensional characters every once in a while, very few of Tolstoy's characters are ever anything but three, and you're never quite sure what they're going to be and what they're going to do and how it's going to turn out. So in Anna, Volkonsky, well, he's a dickhead, but there's that moment when the horse dies, where there's this, incre- it's such an incredible moment when Fru Fru dies, that's the end of the horse, because he's clearly in love with this horse, and it shatters him that he has broken this horse's back. Is this he the race scene? Or? Yeah, yeah. Racing. Mm-hmm. But he cares more, Volkonsky cares more about that horse than the woman he's having an affair with. <laughs> so it's this incredibly complex moment in which the full humanity of Volkonsky comes out over the horse when it should actually be over the woman that he's having an affair with and who he's led to ruin. So it's like an amazing level of complication there. You feel it, too. You feel it, but also you are allowed to exercise those muscles. Like, what is the world? What is going on? What is essential sympathy? What does that mean? It's just magnificent work, magnificent work. The other one, who's my idol, Beckett, is the same, but on the inside. He turns the lens really deeply inside. So what you see are all of these things within this mind that is stuck within itself. I mean, it talks about being stuck within itself. Beckett is all about stuck within the inside and desperately trying to meet something on the outside. And the symbols come back. The scenes come back. And um, as you read more of Beckett, each of these things become deeper and deeper. The Ironman that he's describing takes on a real weight and a real reality and solidity. So uh, by going inside, he manages to restore the world in an interesting way, whereas Tolstoy is doing it from the outside, from the in. I'm almost uh, metrically opposed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Lack of purpose and meaning, and yet yeah. Tolstoy is filled with it. Yeah. Well, and at the, towards the end, Tolstoy's meaning and purpose in humanity is God, ultimately. You know, he turns religious. And so, you know, when he's writing, he's writing for this higher purpose with Beckett. There's 
not there. No, really, no it's not there. Yeah. But that's what makes them actually really great bookends, that um, they don't intersect in a way, but they do. They both get to something essential, but through such vastly different means, it's possible to love them both and not be in a contradiction. I'm speaking with uh, Andre Alexis. Perhaps in closing, could you tell us, uh, now that you've knocked off your 500-page novel, are you going to go toward Beckett with the next one? or No, no, not at all. There are a couple of things in mind that I would like to do. Um, as I said, I am actively engaged in writing a trilogy about Ottawa, so this was the second one. Was Childhood the first one? Or? Childhood was the first yeah. one the main character that all three will have is Henry Wayne. So I'm one last book to do, which will be a biography of Henry Wayne. He does the thing with the raccoon. He does. He does indeed. Yeah. Yes, he does indeed. He turns raccoon feces to gold. And so the last one is, is about him. Maybe it'll be a goodbye to the city. I don't know. I'm hoping not. I mean, I think my so much of my, my mind and my emotions are tied to Ottawa that I can't imagine ever abandoning it. But I can at least think uh, these three will form a kind of hole that I can move beyond. The next one that I would like to do is actually rural. I would like to deal more with them to write a novel about from southwestern Ontario, which I find that a very odd place, and sort of think about it. And so uh, conceivably that could be next. I'd also love to do some short stories again. I mean, I haven't done any since... 1994, 1993. Um, it's been a while, and I just wrote one the other day, and I liked it. I found myself um, really loving the, the process, and so that might be next as well. And I'm also working on, um, I'm working on a project with the um, the Tarragon Theater to do uh, a bunch of um, theater pieces. So I may actually be doing theater next. So there's possibilities. I'm not sure what exactly will be, but I kind of know roughly where I'd like to be. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, an excellent way of ending our talk, the <laughs> fact that you know where you are. Yes, and where I want to go. Yeah. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure.